Okay, we'll go ahead and be turning to Luke chapter number 5. Luke chapter number 5. Been in Luke 5 for a few weeks now. And uh, we've been in a series I've entitled Refocus. And uh, my desire for this, and hopefully I'm not missing the mark on it, but my desire for this is for us just to go through the Gospels and look at each of the different accounts, or at least some of the different accounts, of Jesus and his interactions with his disciples, with his interactions with other people, both uh, ones who liked him and the ones who hated him, and see who Jesus is. Because a lot of times we uh, kind of get our picture of Jesus a bit out of focus, a little bit blurred, and it can be marred by our prejudices, our preferences, by uh, maybe some uh, unsound teaching that we've had or by religion in general. All these different things can skew the way that we look at Jesus. And I want to just kind of peel that away and see Jesus for who he is and for what he is. And that was our hope in this series that we're in. Over the past couple of weeks, what we've looked at, uh, we looked at the account of the paralytic being uh, being healed, and then we looked at the account of the leper being healed. And so Jesus is doing some miracles here, and it's drawing some attention to people, and it is, as we've been talking about a lot with the miracles and things, it is validating the messenger and uh, the message. But what we saw so far is with the uh, leper, it showed us the seriousness of sin, because all throughout Scripture, leprosy is a type or a picture, an illustration of of sin. And in our day and age, we have a way of dumbing down sin. We have a way of categorizing it, explaining it away, of making excuses. This is just little sins. It's not really that big of a deal. This is okay. Everybody does it. Everybody accepts it. But whenever we get down to it, uh, it is still sin. It is still destructive. It is still serious. Okay. And whenever there may be difference in consequences of sin, but here's the thing, all sin is destructive. All sin is destructive. That's why God has put it off limits. That's why he has said that it is sinful, is because it will wreak havoc in our lives. It will cause destruction. Just like leprosy, it is disgusting, it is debilitating, it is corrupting, and in the end, it's lethal. And the only way to cure it, just like leprosy, is a miracle from God. And that miracle is salvation. That's the only cure. And so uh, the lost man should see himself as sinful and seek the cleansing that only comes from Christ. And the saved man should see sin for what it is and do all that he can to stay away from it and keep it from his life. And then after that, as I said, we looked at the paralytic last week and it showed us that honestly, we need to get to Jesus. We need to be in his presence. We need to be where he is at. There's going to be obstacles that get in the way. There's going to be plenty of things that could turn us aside or distract us from being where we need to be. But we need to prioritize Jesus in so much that he is the most important thing, in so much that we will not let anything stand between us and him. For the lost person, they need to ignore all the things that would keep them away from him and just get to Jesus. For the Christians, there is no one else that can cleanse and can transform and can make us fruitful, we need to abide in Jesus. We need to be where he is. And our last plea uh, last week was to make sure that whenever it comes to others seeking Jesus, that as the four that were bearing the paralytic to Jesus, 
that you are a help and not a hindrance when it comes to people coming to Christ. And I, I think that a lot of times we as Christians, in our actions, our attitudes, the way that we live, we are more of a stumbling block. We are more of a barrier to people coming to Christ than a help to get them to him. And so that's what we've seen so far. But today we're going to be uh, building on these previous thoughts. Uh, Jesus' actions have drawn a lot of attention. Some of it was good, some of it was bad. But that's going to be a, that's going to be multiplied in our passage today because Jesus is going to intentionally put himself between two opposing extremes, two polar opposites. Many times I have uh, said that the Christian life is about balance, right? Christian life is about balance, and we have a tendency to extremes. I've compared it to uh, a road with a ditch on either side, and for some reason we tend to veer to one ditch or the other and get caught up in these things. And this is somewhat what we're going to see today. But as we look at these two extremes, it's going to teach us a lesson or two about ourselves in the process of this. So let's look at Luke chapter 5, uh, down at about verse 27. Luke 5, 27. It says, After these things he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? And he said unto them, Can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Then shall they fast in those days. And he spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a piece of new garment upon, upon an old. If otherwise, or, me, if otherwise, then both the new, or, both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottle shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith, the old is better. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you once again asking your blessings on your word. We ask your blessings upon the preaching of your word. And Lord, I just pray, ask you just to, to fill me with your spirit, just guide and direct my words and and help me, Lord, that uh, the things that I say will be uh, helpful to your people, be with each person here, that they will glean from this service exactly that which they stand in need of. Help us, Lord, to uh, look at these characters that we're going to be seeing today and help us, Lord, to uh, be transparent with ourselves and, and, Lord, just to get our blinders off of our eyes and be able to see ourselves in these people and, Lord, to be able to seek your help and your guidance and your correction. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. And amen. So as we look at this passage, we find at first the calling of Levi, or Matthew as he's called in other places. Matthew the Apostle, the one that wrote the book of Matthew. And we find that he was a tax collector by trade. 
And I think that, or excuse me, I think that Matthew had been observing Jesus for some time. He had been sitting in his little tax booth. He had been hearing all the stories that had been coming and going. He had been listening to the teaching. He had been somewhat of a spectator of Jesus up until this point of time. And I believe that for two reasons. The first one being that whenever Jesus came to him and says, follow me, he followed immediately. Okay, we've seen this with Peter as well, that there was a time of uh, looking to him and kind of sorting and sifting through the thoughts and coming to a conclusion about it. Uh, it wasn't that Jesus came as the Pied Piper and said, follow me, and all of a sudden they just, okay, and went unknowingly. So I believe he'd been watching and been observing for a while. But uh, the second reason I believe this is because in Matthew's gospel, he gives this same account, and he gives it in chapter number 9. Okay, so what's the significance of that? Well, Matthew has nine, or excuse me, eight chapters worth of material that has happened before he ever began following Jesus. He knew about all these things that were going to happen, all these things that Jesus was doing and that he was teaching, and had a very good knowledge of it before he ever became a follower of Jesus. So it seems to me that he was sitting back watching and taking notes, right? And so Jesus comes by, he calls him to follow him. He leaves all and immediately follows Jesus. And then he threw a party and invited his friends to come. And so all of the publicans show up to this feast that Matthew has thrown. And all the religious leaders have been watching as well. And they see Jesus. They've been trying to figure Jesus out. They've been trying to... Uh, decide what they think of him. They weren't too crazy about him telling the, the paralytic that his sins were forgiven, right? They weren't too crazy about him touching an unclean leper. But up until this point of time, they were still saying, well, maybe, maybe not. We don't know what's really going on. But whenever they saw uh, Jesus with these publicans and sinners, it seemed to be almost a final straw. It seemed almost to be a turning point in provoking their ire and their disgust and their hatred toward Jesus because there was no way in their minds that Jesus could be of God with him keeping such company with publicans and sinners. And so they make a decision here now that this man must not be of God. They begin to condemn, they begin to uh, reject Jesus at this time because of his associations, because of those that he is hanging around. The thing that caught my attention in this passage, though, is that I believe that we can find ourselves somewhere within this passage from time to time. Mm -hmm. Maybe not always, but sometimes. And there are some red flags, there are some warnings, there are some cautions for us because we are good at overlooking our struggles and our burdens and our flaws, but sometimes we need to have them brought out right before us so that we can deal with them, right? And so we don't want to really identify ourselves with the publicans. We don't really want to identify ourselves with Pharisees because both of those are not very nice groups of people in Scripture, are they? These are groups of people that no one really liked. I guess during Jesus' time, a lot of people did like the Pharisees. They, they were pretty well received. But for us today, we kind of, we look at them, we mock them and ridicule them. Why? Because they were usually the ones that were coming out against Jesus. They were usually the ones giving Jesus a hard time. And then Jesus was able to, in turn, 
in a way, kind of put them to shame. We find them tripping all over themselves to uh, come against Jesus, but then failing miserably over and over again. So we just kind of, uh, I say we, maybe I should say I, I look forward to the times that Jesus comes in contact with the Pharisees because you know something's going to happen, right? You know that there's going to be an uncomfortable and awkward moment for the Pharisees and just kind of relish in that a little bit. But unfortunately, if I look into it a little bit deeper, if I evaluate myself, sometimes I find that I'm not all that much different from those guys. I might relish in it a little bit. I might uh, look at it and say, yeah, Jesus, you let them have it. But then if I actually look at who they were and what they were up to and what they were like, it gets a little bit uncomfortable. And so I want to look at uh, just three different views on this today. I want to look at the Pharisees, and I want to look at the publicans, and then I want to look at Jesus. I want to look at the self-righteous, the sinners, and the Savior. So that's going to be kind of our outline for today. This is going to be the, the map, if you will, of where we're going at with this. And so if you already see where I'm going, take a nap or whatever, get your extra hour. But hopefully you'll follow along with me, okay? And so the first group we're looking at is the self-righteous, obviously the Pharisees. And throughout the Gospels, as I said, we like to give them a hard time. But for those who are unfamiliar with who the Pharisees are, or for the rest of us, we can have a little bit of a refresher here. The Pharisees were a religious sect. It was a group amongst the Jews that had its beginning somewhere in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a 400-year period of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They had been through uh, occupations. They had been through uh, uh, being exiled into foreign nations. They had been uh, under all sorts of... Uh, all sorts of other nations controlling them, all kinds of things going on. And the Jews were God's chosen people, and they were losing their identity to an, uh, to an extent. They were uh, allowing their religion to leave them. They were going away from the law and the prophets and the things of the, the, the scriptures. And so there was a group of fundamentalists, a group of purists that rose up, and they said, we are going to uh, teach and to preach the truth to our people we're going to cause the Jews to return back to their faith in God, and we're going to put this as a center point. They were seeking a revival amongst their people. That's what they were desiring, and this is where the Pharisees got their beginning. It was actually a good thing. It was something that was honorable in the beginning, but over time, it corrupted. It morphed. It mutated, whatever you want to call it, and they started focusing so much on appearances. They started focusing so much on the keeping of laws and the going through of rituals and on all of these things, they built their identity and they began to be defined by how well they could perform. They began to be defined by how well they could keep the laws and the rules and the rituals and all of these things. And in addition to that, since keeping the laws was so good, they began to uh, add to the laws and make the law is even more strict and more difficult to keep, and they themselves were experts at keeping the laws and the rules that God had given them and that they had added to it, and so they elevated themselves to a position of power, a position of authority. They were seen as being the most religious, as being the most holy, as being the prime example of what a Jew was supposed to be, and they enjoyed that position. They love that position. They love the praises of men. 
They loved the respect and the authority that they garnered from that. And by Jesus' day, the Pharisees were extremely hypocritical, judgmental, corrupt, but they put on an air of superiority. They put on an air of morality. They looked as if they had it all together. And that's what they wanted everyone to believe. And so for all of the Jews, they looked at the Pharisees and said they are the cream of the crop. They are the absolute best. They are a picture of what a Jew is supposed to be on the outside. But we also see that they are the ones that crucified Jesus. They are the ones who constantly chased after Jesus. They are the ones that constantly caused him problems. And so we can kind of start seeing that uh, the there was a chink in their armor, if you will, that their mask was beginning to slip, okay? And Jesus is actually kind of ripping the mask off. They have hidden behind their religion. They had uh, hidden behind all of these, uh, all of this facade that they had made up, and Jesus is calling them out on it. They had taken and corrupted the scriptures, and they had almost idolized the law and their teachings, and they had replaced God with that. They no longer had a heart for mankind. The scriptures were no longer to bring mankind to God, but instead they were a bondage, they were a trap, they were a prison that the Pharisees were using to box up anyone and everyone who would attempt to submit to the Jewish religion. And so whenever Jesus came there, he was coming to liberate. He was coming to draw people to God. He was coming to break down this religious facade that they had built up, and they didn't like it. And so as they had become so expert in looking holy and pious and religious, as they had garnered all of this attention and all of the praise and all of the glory for themselves, it resulted in them being proud and being arrogant, okay? They looked down on others who didn't perform to their standard. They looked down on others, and the others only served to lift these Pharisees up because they could look down and say, I'm not like that guy. I don't do those things. I'm not that way. We even have an account in Scripture where a Pharisee and a publican went up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee stood there with his chest puffed out, looking up at God and saying, look at what a prize you got when you got me. That was essentially his attitude. He says, I thank you that I'm not like this publican, that I tithe and I do this and I do these great works, and look how great that I am. That's how he prayed. But it says that the publican fell down on his face, basically, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that the publican went home justified and the Pharisee was still lost and in his condition. Okay? So we get a little idea of, of what's going on in this. And so they like to boast and lift themselves up. They like to condemn and look down on others. They like to compare themselves with others and come out on top. They hold fast their customs. We see that in verse number 33 when they're talking about the praying and the fasting. They're saying, we take great pride in this. And then here's Jesus, and he's having a feast with all these sinners. 
they were, they were taking pride in the things that they had done and all of their traditions. And then we look at all these things and say, yeah, they're pretty awful people. Let them have it, Jesus. But where do we fit in in all of this? In these past two messages that I've preached, I said, first of all, that sin is serious. It is wicked. It is corrupting. It is awful for us. And then I said that we need Jesus. There's nothing that we can do of ourselves, of our own power. We can't save ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can't keep ourselves. We need Jesus. And the Pharisee responds to that and says, I'm not that bad of a person. The Pharisee responds to that and says, I've got things pretty well under control. Jesus would probably be pretty happy with the way I'm performing. I don't know that I'm that rotten. I definitely wouldn't identify with a leper, right? And it can be easy for us, especially if we don't come from a rough background, if we don't have a past that has been forgiven. The Bible tells us that to whom much is forgiven, they're going to be that much more grateful and gracious for the forgiveness they've received, right? If we don't come from necessarily a sinful and horrible background, if we haven't been forgiven of much in our estimation, we can think that our good works and all the good things that we have done, we can name all of these things. We can say, I do this, and I do that, and I don't do this, and I don't do that, and we can be fairly puffed up and fairly arrogant. And then we can tell you a lot of people who are a lot worse than us, right? We've all come in contact with folks that would fit this description, right? Go out and talk to people, and they say, well, I'm not a bad person. They'll list off all of their good deeds, right? They'll say, well, I knew a Christian one time, and they acted like this, and I'm better than they are. But then whenever we start applying it to ourselves, are we ever that way? Are we ever to the place where we justify ourselves, where we make little of our sins, where we make much of ourselves, where we feel pretty good about our performance, and we can point to all of the all of these uh, great things that we have done, all of our merits and all of the, the, the things that you should be pretty proud of, that you would be pretty impressed with if you knew of all the things that I did. And we begin to be puffed up. We begin to be arrogant in our position. And that can happen even as Christians. There's plenty of lost people, plenty of good people, are lost. There's plenty of good people that are going to find themselves in hell in these days. But there's also plenty of Christians who are going to stunt their growth and hinder any kind of growth, any kind of relationship with God, because ultimately they can't see themselves as needing Him. They can't see themselves as sinners. They feel as if they've got it under control. We seem to forget that we're sinful and that we need Jesus, right? We point out our virtues. We point out everybody else's vices. We condemn the wickedness. We condemn the sinners around us at the same time being completely oblivious to our own sins. We can say, I'm not a thief. I'm not a liar. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a homosexual. I'm not a drunkard, right? And list all the things that I'm not. But can I say that I don't struggle with pride? Sometimes get angry. Right? Lustful, envious, harbor bitterness within myself. Those ones 
aren't quite as comfortable, are they? Those are the ones that are easier to hide and to keep out of view of everyone else. It's easy to pick on those ones who are publicly sinful while we're covering up our private sin and act as if it's not an issue. And in reality, we find that we compare a little bit with the publicans, right? Or not the publicans, the Pharisees. If you feel like you've got Christianity under control, if you think you've got it figured out, if you would look at your life and say, yeah, I'm, I'm performing really well, I'm doing really well at this, then you, you probably, it's a little bit Pharisee, right? On the other hand, though, we have the sinners. We have the publicans. And I went through and told you who the Pharisees were. Now I need to tell you who the publicans are. Because in Ireland, there's a complete different definition for publican. In Ireland, a publican is someone who owns and runs a pub, right? This is not who we're talking about. The publican in Scripture was a, or excuse me, was a tax collector. It was someone who was a Jew who had been contracted out by the Roman government to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. You can already see a problem here. The Jews resented the Romans, and now some of their own people were working for the enemy. They were seen as a traitor. But not only that, they were a dishonest traitor because they would take advantage of their power and their position to enrich themselves. And so if I was a publican, I'd come to Peter, and according to Rome, he owes 100 euro in taxes. I'd say, okay, you owe me 120 just to pad my own pocket. And they were skimming extra and they were extorting from the people because they had the Roman government behind them and they could. And so not only were they traitors, they were also thieves and liars in the eyes of the Jewish people. They had, uh, they had committed such a huge trespass against their own people. So they were some of the most hated in Jerusalem. And for Jesus to come and to be fraternizing with them, for him to be at a feast surrounded by them would have been problematic. The publicans also, or not, excuse me, uh, the Pharisees also, say not just publicans, but also sinners. And whenever you see this phrase, publicans and sinners, or whenever you see the religious leaders talking about sinners in Scripture, what they are referring to are the Jews who have ceased following the Jewish religion. Okay? When you see this, publicans and sinners, these are the ones that have given up on religion. These are the ones that quit trying to follow the law, that quit trying to keep up with the sacrifices. They're the ones that have just thrown it all off and said, forget it. They may have done it for different reasons. They may have said, the religious leaders are corrupt, and I want nothing to do with that. I'm just going to distance myself from it. Or they may have said they have added so much to the religion and there's no way I'm going to be able to abide by it. I'm just going to quit. I'm not even going to try anymore. And they're going to distance themselves from it. But for whatever reason, the publicans and the sinners have found themselves as outcasts. Both socially and religiously, they are outcasts. And along with them, we can go ahead and throw in the lepers that we talked about and also the paralytic that we talked about. All of these men, all of these people were the outcasts of society, and these were the ones that Jesus was associating with. And whenever that happened, the Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, I'm done with him. I can't take someone who's going to be around that kind of people. 
But whenever we think about these outcasts, the publicans, the sinners, the lepers, the cripples, do you think that whenever Jesus healed them or forgave them or called them, that everything changed immediately? The leper was no longer a leper, but do you think that made it as if the leprosy had never existed? The cripple was no longer a cripple, but did that make it as if he was no longer, or that he never was crippled? Matthew was forgiven. He was a disciple. He was following Jesus. But does that negate all of his past, everything that was behind him? No. You think the, the leper never had trouble adapting to his new life after he was healed? Try to put yourself in the leper's position, okay? For years, he had to be isolated, alienated from all of society, couldn't be around his family, couldn't come within any distance of anyone around him. Anytime that he was in a public situation, he had to shout out, unclean, right? And now all of a sudden, he was clean. Do you ever think maybe out of habit, someone got too close to him and he said unclean and he's like, oh, wait, never mind. Do you think that he had a little bit of trouble with social anxiety <clears throat> whenever he was no, never allowed to be around anyone and all of a sudden he had people closer to him than he'd ever been? Do you think that he ever got a little uncomfortable in those situations? Do you think he ever struggled with that kind of thing? Do you think that his past was just completely gone from him? No. Can you imagine the first time that uh, he got a blister or a blemish of some sort, a pimple started coming up? He's like, oh no, it's returning. You ever, you ever think through these kind of things? Because this is the reality of humanity. Yes, he was cleansed, but that doesn't automatically erase everything and fix all that. He's going to have to overcome all of the mental programming and all of the trauma and all of the problems that he had with being a leper. What about the crippled man? Do you think he went home and he went to bed that night and he woke up the next morning and he thought, and he's like, oh man, that was just a dream? until he started wiggling his toes, and he's like, oh, those actually work now. Then he got up, and he stood on his feet, and he's like, oh, I can actually stand now. Right? Whenever he was able to walk, he probably maybe did some sprints around the house. Maybe he was doing some more leaping and dancing and stuff. Whenever he realized the next day that it, it was still there, the healing was still there. But then he had the reality, he had to go out and search for a job because now he could work. He had to figure out how to hold down a job, how to take care of a family, he had to figure out how to deal in society. He had to put up with his past of everybody still referring to him as the cripple. Right? As the beggar. Everybody who's seen him say, wait, weren't you that guy? And he probably got tired of hearing it. His past still stuck with him. He still had that. That was part of his identity. And then if we come to Matthew... Matthew had crooked everyone around him. Matthew had cheated everyone around him. He had betrayed all of his people. Do you think that as soon as he started following Jesus, everyone just said, oh, you're good now, we forgive you? Do you think he was never troubled by the fact that he had cheated people? Do you think his conscience never bothered him after that? That he received mockery and ridicule because of what he used to be and what he used to do? Do you not think that he probably struggled with that? Say that he did. And so for the sinners, they came to Jesus 
They desired to be healed. They desired to be forgiven, but that didn't end the struggle. There's still going to be guilt. There's still going to be grief. There's still going to be uh, adjusting. There's still going to be a reckoning that takes place whenever you're trying to reconcile the truth about who you are now in Christ with who you're used to being as a human being. Because oftentimes there is a long way between what Jesus says that you are and what you still feel like that you are. There's a long ways to go. And so we see that the Pharisee is not the only one that has a problem here. We can look at this and say, oh, great, the, the, the publican, he's got forgiven, and the, the paralytic, he's healed, and the, the leper, he's cleansed, and all these things, everything is great. They still had a lot that they had to work through. And there was a battle in their heart and a battle in their mind, very much the same as the Pharisees. And where the Pharisees would wrestle with pride and self-righteousness, the sinners, the publicans, the lepers, all of these guys, they would wrestle with guilt, with shame, with self-doubt, with questioning, right? And so there's a huge lesson for us to learn from both of these. I like to just kind of think back at these guys and what their life would have been like, what would have uh, went through their lives, what would have went through their heads, maybe I should say, as they were trying to make sense of it all, as they were trying to uh, make peace, if you will, with the new life that Jesus had given them. As I said, these are opposites between the Pharisee and the publican between the self-righteous and the sinner. One being self-righteous, one being self-condemning. Both of them are comparing themselves with others. The Pharisees are coming out on top while the publicans are always losing out and coming out on the bottom, right? As their past is haunting them, they're well aware of all their faults and their failures. They look at the others. They look at the Pharisees. And they say, they have it all together. Look at how righteous and how holy and how good they are. And they look at themselves and they say, I'm a mess. And so the sinner has no problem with seeing their sin or the filthiness of it. But the problem they have is realizing that Jesus can and will do something about it. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm glad in our passage that we find that Matthew is celebrating. He's not wallowing. He's not... Uh, grieved, he's, he's accepting what Jesus has done in his life. Now, those days might come in the future, but for this time, he is celebrating, he is telling other people about it, he's bringing other publicans in to meet this Jesus who has accepted him, who has forgiven him, whenever all the rest of the world hated him. But both sin and self-righteousness will have a, the same effect on us. They keep the lost people from Jesus. If you're self-righteous, you say, I don't need Jesus. And if you're sinful and you realize how horrible and sinful you are, you say, there's no way Jesus wants me, right? They keep us from Jesus. They keep us from getting saved. They keep us from growing. And so one says, I don't need fixed. And the other says, I'm beyond repair. And so we've seen the self-righteous and the sinner, what they had to say. 
But what does Jesus have to say about both of them? What does Jesus have to say about both of them? Jesus told the self-righteous person that the whole don't need a doctor, that he came to call the, the sinner, not the righteous, to repentance. And so was he calling the Pharisees whole? Was he calling them righteous? No, he was calling them blind. A person doesn't go to the doctor until they realize they're sick. A person doesn't seek help until they realize they can't do it themselves. A person is not going to come to Jesus until they see themselves as lost and in need of salvation. And this is a sad thing about it. Jesus isn't condemning the Pharisees. He's not going and ragging on them and telling them how horrible they are. He seeks to save them, but he wants them to see they need him. He tells them at one place that they are whited sepulchers. Sepulcher is a tomb. It is a grave. He says it's as if you've decorated up the grave beautifully, but in reality, underneath that grave is corruption and death and decay. We go to some of the, the cemeteries here in Ireland, and they decorate them up so beautifully. People will spend tens of thousands of euro on a grave, on great granite and marble slabs and statues and sculptures and carvings and all of those things just to cover up the fact that beneath those is death and decay and corruption, right? This is what Jesus says these Pharisees are like. He says, you don't realize your actual condition. You look like you have it together. You look like things are going fine. But inside, there's a problem. And so until we see ourselves as sinners, we're not going to seek the Savior. Until we as Christians realize we need to be fixed, we're not going to go to Jesus and allow him to do a work in us. Plenty of Christians are never going to grow as long as they think they've got it all together and they've got it figured out. But whenever we realize that we need Jesus every single day, when we realize that there are still things that need rooted out in us, there is still sin that dwells within our members, there is still unrighteousness and uncleanliness that needs to be dealt with in our lives, and we will come to him to deal with it, we are going to remain in that same condition. And so self-righteousness stunts our growth and it prevents our fruitfulness. All through the Old Testament, we find that God is reaching out to the Jews. He's desiring to heal them. He's desiring to help them, but they don't see where they need his help. And they constantly reject him. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. All through the New Testament, Jesus is seeking to save and transform, and not even just in the New Testament, all the way up until now. And that is not going to happen while we're still trying to do it ourselves or we feel as if we don't need it. For the sinner, there's hope. <clears throat> there's hope for them in Christ. The Bible tells us there's none beyond his power to save. He would have saved the Pharisees. He would have saved the priests. He would have saved Judas that rejected and betrayed him. There is none beyond his power to save. He meant it whenever he said that he loved the world. He meant it whenever he said that he would save whosoever. But then after you're saved, we see that the Bible tells us that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, that they're in the depths of the sea there to be remembered no more. And the Bible tells us that if we are in Christ, that we are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And what people like to do with that, maybe that's the Pharisee in us, 
is we like to use that verse to evaluate and see if they really got it. Are they really a new creature? But that's not what the verse says. It doesn't mean that we're to use this to evaluate to see if they act like a new creature. It is a statement of fact that we accept by faith. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, whether he acts like it yet or not. Even if the leper is still struggling with his past leprosy, even if the cripple is still struggling with his newfound limbs and mobility, even if the publican is still wrestling with greed and with lust and with selfishness and with desires and with his past, he is still a new creature. Old things are passed away. He is no longer a child of the devil. He is no longer on his way to hell. He is no longer empty and broken and in need of Christ. He is now filled. His identity has been changed. He has been filled with the Spirit. He has been destined for heaven. He has been forgiven. The Bible says that we are accepted in the Beloved. We belong to Him. And so this is what Jesus says about these, that for the Pharisee, they're not as good as they think they are. They are blind to their need of Jesus. If we're trying to go through it, acting like we got it all together and think we don't need him, we are wrong. We have fooled ourselves. The Bible says if we say that we have no sin, then we, are, we have deceived ourselves, right? But for the Christian, for the sinner, for the one who realizes that he's in need of a Savior, we are accepted, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are His, and we need Him still to walk with us, to change us, to transform us, and to show us how to live in light of the reality of who we are in Christ. We are a new creature, but it's going to take us a little while for us to accept it. It's going to take us a little while for us to act like it, but that is why we still need Him. And so if you struggle with guilt of your past or you struggle with sin, take God at his word and let him do what only he can do in your life. Don't look at those who are around you that seem like they have it all together because they got their problems too, just like the Pharisees, right? And so just to wrap this up today, our challenge for today, if you think you're a good person, you're going to get to heaven by your good works, the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No matter how good you think that you are, you're still a sinner in need of a Savior. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Pharisee says, Look at all my good works. Look at how great I am. Yeah, that's the boasting he's talking about. And that doesn't save you. It is the gift of God. Salvation through him. If you're lost, you think you're too far gone, you think that there's no way that Jesus would want you, I tell you, there's plenty of worse people in the Bible that Jesus saved. There is none beyond his power to save. If you're a Christian that thinks you've got it figured out, you don't. Honestly, the closer that you get to Christ, the more disgusted you'll get with your own sin and the less time that you'll have to worry about everybody else's. You ever realize that? The closer you get to God, the more your own sins are going to disgust you, not everybody else's. And if you're saved and struggling with past or present sins, know that they are forgiven. They're under the blood. 
He loves you. He desires to make a reality in your life of what you already are. He wants you to be clothed in that identity of being a new creature. He wants it to be transformed. He wants you to be able to experience his good and his perfect will for your lives. And he loves us in spite of our sin, in spite. Jesus didn't go to the publican and say, okay, do all of these things, then I'll I'll consider loving you. I'll consider accepting you. That was never the case, was it? It's a lot harder for us to forgive ourselves sometimes than to realize that Jesus has already forgiven us. And so whether you find yourself aligning more with the Pharisees, lifted up in pride, oblivious to your own faults, or more closely aligned to the publicans, very aware of your own faults and condemning yourself over it, know that you need Jesus and he is enough for the publican, for the Pharisee. We need Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings, Lord. We thank you for this passage, Lord. And Lord, I know honestly in my life, I've I've been under both categories. There's times that I'm lifted up in pride and become pharisaical. And there's times, Lord, that my own sins and unrighteousness weighs me down and beats me up, Lord. And I feel as if I'm so unworthy and undeserving and there's no way you could ever use me. Lord, I pray, help me to uh, see things clearly from your word, see things as you do. And Lord, I just pray that you be with each person here today. Do the work that's needed in, in their hearts and their lives. Lord, if there's that, uh, that root of pride and that tendency toward that pharisaical nature, I pray, Lord, that you would confront that, that they would uh, bring that to you, Lord, and that they would seek cleansing and help to overcome that. Lord, if they struggle with guilt and they struggle with self-condemnation, Lord, I pray that likewise, that they would take your word and that they would uh, see that you love them, Lord, that you've forgiven them. And if there's anyone here today, regardless of where they fall in this, that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that today, above all things, they would see their need for salvation and that today would be the day they call upon you and trust you as their Savior. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.